This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, your host for The Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. And today I want to talk about someone that I didn't hear about before and didn't know about. And those of you who are more media-oriented probably have heard about him before. And his name is Bass Reeves. And Bass Reeves was one of the first Black Deputy U.S. Marshals west of the Mississippi, and this was all the way back during the time of Reconstruction, and he was first appointed in 1875. There have been a lot of movies made about him, TV shows and series that have snippets of information about him, and it's also rumored that he really was the prototype behind the Lone Ranger. And you'll understand why as we cover more about him. And for those of you who may not see it in this way, I just want to note that Black history in the United States is also U.S. history and American history. It takes so many different groups of people to create this country and to serve this country and Black Americans, African Americans also have a big part in the success of the United States and having built a lot of it as well. So Beth Reeves was born in Crawford City, Arkansas, and that was back in July of 1838. Given that time frame, he was born into slavery. He and his family were enslaved, and he was born into a family where The slave owners were Arkansas State Legislator William Steele Reeves. And so this family, along the way, they served in roles that had to do with the law and the government and legal matters. So here he was in slavery. And so when the Civil War started and we had the war between the North and the South, the ownership family, they fought on the Confederate side of the Civil War. And it's believed that Bass Reeves went along with the slave owner because he was his personal bodyguard. I'm sure you can imagine that to the extent that he was there during the Civil War and having to accompany the slave owner who was fighting on the Confederate side, that would have been extremely difficult and challenging And so it turns out this is believed to be when he decided to run away from slavery. So somehow he gets out of the slave uh, situation and he's now a runaway. So what is he going to do as a runaway at this time in his life? Because you really can't be in the public eye too visibly, or you might be re-enslaved and recaptured. So he goes to what's known as the Indian Territory at the time. 
and that Indian territory was predominantly in Kansas and Oklahoma, and there were many people who had been relocated under President Andrew Jackson. Many Indian tribes had been relocated into all of this territory, and there were five nations that were described as the civilized five, and those were the Creek, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Seminole, and the Chickasaw. And what was interesting is as Bass Reeves moved into their territory and lived among them, he'd stay isolated. He actually learned the languages, and particularly the Cherokee language. He learned their culture, and he also learned tracking skills. You know, the Native Americans are very good at tracking animals and prey and so on. Well, he learned from them while he was living in the territory. At the time when Emancipation Proclamation occurred, he was able to move from the Indian Territory and go back to Arkansas. So he was back in Arkansas in 1875 when he was 37 years old. And this is when he was selected to be a deputy U.S. Marshal. And he was one of 200 men who were selected for this job. And I'm sure information about him had spread prior to this selection because he was known as a man who could handle weapons. He was a sharpshooter. He was able to do a lot. He was also physically strong. He was six foot two. So he had to deal with, as a marshal, he had to deal with all kinds of criminals, people who were horse thieves and people who were murderers and people who were cattle rustlers, gunslingers, bandits, swindlers of all kinds. Those were the people he had to deal with. What was interesting and unique about him in comparison to the other marshals of the day is he would go out and he would round up large groups of people to bring in, maybe 14 or 16 at a time, which was a lot to handle. And the average marshal only brought in about four to six people at a time. So this was a significant difference in terms of what he did and what he was able to do. What's also interesting is in the course of his career, it is purported that he made at least 3,000 arrests And he did have to kill about 14 people to preserve his life. And in all the years when he was a marshal, he himself never actually sustained a wound, a gunshot wound or anything of that sort. So that in and of itself is pretty amazing. He ended up serving in this capacity from 1875 to 1910. So that means he was successful for a very long time. What was also interesting is that at that time, and because he was living in the areas of the territories and these areas were not yet states, he had a lot of freedom, just like we talked about before when we were talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, during the Reconstruction years and before the Jim Crow laws came in. People had a lot of freedom and the racists had a tendency to live more together than they did apart. And so you will see photographs of him Uh, with the other marshals of the day. And they were all there together doing a job together and having partnerships together to bring in the criminals. So he had to arrest white men as well for conducting crimes, doing crimes. And sometimes he often was alone as he was doing this work. And he apparently was very good at it and very successful at it. 
Now, life wasn't 100% perfect. There were challenges, of course, along the way. And in one case, he accidentally shot a man who was a cook in the posse. The story, as the story goes, he purportedly shot the man accidentally when he was cleaning his weapon. And as a real strong gunman, you would think that that wouldn't happen. However, somehow it did. But he maintained that he did not murder him. He maintained his innocence, that this was an error and this was a mistake. And one of the things to know about him is that he had a great reputation for being an honest man and being a man of integrity. And he did have to go to court over this situation. As a marshal, he worked for the famous hanging judge in Fort Smith, who was Judge Isaac Parker. And he had to show up in Isaac Parker's court in order to be tried for this crime. And as it turned out, he was very credible in his testimony, and therefore he was acquitted of that crime and did not have to serve time. Actually, I should say acquitted for this alleged crime, because in reality, he did not murder the guy. He said it was an accident. Now, interestingly, Bass Reeves was married twice. His first wife was uh, Nellie Jenny, and he was married to her from 1864 to 1896 when she died, and that's what ended their marriage. He later married Winnie Sumter from 1900 until he died, and he had a total of about 11 children. And so one of the other things that happened in his life is that one of his sons was up on charges or killing his wife, and so he actually went out as a lawman, and had to track down and bring his son into justice. So this was part of his history, and people knew he had done that in terms of being honest. He operated in the same way, well, if this was somebody other than my son, I'd have to bring them to justice. And so he did not let the fact that this was his son stop him from bringing his son uh, to justice. His son, he was tried for this crime and ended up having to serve about 11 years in prison. And supposedly, as the story goes, once he got out of prison, he no longer was involved in any kind of problematic behavior, but lived as a model citizen. Bass Reeves was very effective with weapons, and it's believed that some of his favorite ones to use were the Winchester models, the 1873 and the 1892, and he also had a Colt 45 Peacemaker as well. And so he would track and often had to kill some of the people that were outlaws that he went after, including some famous outlaws along the way. Some of the outlaws were people such as Jim Webb, who purportedly had killed 11 people. And then there was Wiley Bear, who was a murderer and a horse thief, both him and his gang he brought into justice. And then there was uh, Frank Buck, who was a Creek desperado, and he shot and killed him as well. And as I mentioned earlier, Bass Reeves himself was never wounded in the line of duty and the work that he did. Later in his career and in his life, in about 1907, Oklahoma became a state. And that was problematic because that's when the Jim 
Pro laws came into the region, and the African American people really did not have the freedoms that they had before or to mingle with all the other races once the Jim Crow laws came in. And also, the service as a marshal ended with statehood, and he did serve in the Muskogee Police Department until the time of his retirement and then ultimately his death. And what was interesting is that he stayed employed almost until the time of his death, which was in January of 1910 at 71 years old. He died of nephritis, which was called Bright's disease, and that was in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And he was pretty robust until he got ill, and after his illness, he was no longer able to serve in the role. There are a number of honors that are attributed to him that came later, much later in his life. He never lived to see these things, but he's inducted in the Texas Trail of Fame. That happened in 2013. There's a statue of him in Pendergraph Park in Fort Smith, Arkansas. That was put up in 2012. And there's a Bass Reeves Memorial Bridge in Oklahoma. It's US 62 that spans the Arkansas River between Muskogee and Fort Gibson. And that was named in 2011. When you think about his descendants, some of them were also interesting. It turns out he was the great uncle of Paul Bragg, who was the first black man who was appointed as a federal administrative law judge in 1972. His great-grandson was also a part of the National Football League and the Canadian Football League as a player. His name was Willard Reeves. And then his great-great-great-grandson was part of the National Hockey League as a player, and his name was Ryan Reeves. And then the Canadian Football League player, another great-great-great-grandson, was Jordan Reeves. So his descendants went on to also do exceptional activities in their lives. What I want us to take from this brief account of Bass Reeves is to look a little bit at the leadership components of what he was doing. And there's seven things that I want to highlight about his leadership. Number one is that he really pursued excellence. He made sure he had not just understanding and training in weapons, he had weapons expertise. He was a sharpshooter deluxe, if you will. And so he really pursued excellence in his craft would be the first thing I would say. And number two, I would say he was a continuous learner. While he was in the Indian Territory, he didn't just stay away or isolate himself. He became a part of that community and learned from them as well. So he spent a lifetime really as a continuous learner. And as part of that, being a boundary spanner. He had white colleagues when he was a marshal. He had Indian associates and and colleagues throughout his life in the territory and beyond. And so that's a great thing. When we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, he was already into DNI back in the day and uh, certainly uh, lived amongst the people, lots of uh, different diverse people. 
And then thirdly, I would say that preparation was a large part of his life. He had to prepare himself for the work that he was doing. He became a farmer. I didn't mention that once he had run away from slavery, he went into farming and that's what his family did. And he had to learn there too. And he had to prepare himself for the farming work in the farming industry. And then I would also say that he was a man of great courage to go out after those outlaws, to be unafraid and to bring them into justice with 14 and 16 at a time, which was amazing, uh, an amazing feat for that time when most people did not do that. So he was definitely a man of courage. I would also say he was a man who was fair and honest. He had integrity. The fact that he knew he had to stand trial for this killing of the cook, and he stayed in town and stood trial uh, for that, and he knew he was innocent and he was acquitted. He also knew that his son had to be found, had to be arrested, and also stand trial for the murder of the son's wife. And so that's being fair, that's being honest, that's applying the law to yourself not just to other people. So he was a person of integrity, which really did help in his court case and in his trial, because people knew that that was his character. And the number six, I would say, service was really important. He wasn't just doing things for himself. He was thinking about the greater community and service to the greater community to remove the criminals would make life easier and safer for everyone who lived in the region. And so he he took it very seriously, this job of tracking down, capturing, and if necessary, killing the criminals who he was after. And then the seventh thing I would say is the fact that he was married twice. He did have a number of children. He embraced life. He was about more than just the work itself. He also lived, if you will, and attended to his farm and the other things that were important to him. So I think we can take a lesson from that in terms of how we live our own lives. We can live our own lives, even in our business pursuits, with excellence, being continuous learners, preparing for the tasks that we're called to do, showing courage and what we approach, being fair, honest, people of integrity, people who have character, and rendering our service to the broader community and for the broader good and embracing life in a holistic and full way. Life is more than just work. So I hope that you have learned something from Bass Reeves and from this short account of him. Feel free to look online and look up lots of resources about the media, little films and TV shows and everything else that have been done as an inspiration from the life of Bass Reeves. And as I already mentioned, the Lone Ranger also purportedly came out of inspiration from Bass Reeves. So today I'd like to close with a Bible verses that come from Colossians, the third chapter. And this is going to be starting with verse 23. And it says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. I think that those scriptures really do 
kind of remind me of the life of Bass Reeves because he was doing his work for a greater purpose, a greater meaning, and a greater good. And he did not respect people in the sense of being unfair. When his son committed a crime, he also pursued him, tracked him down, and brought him in to justice. So that last part, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there's no partiality. That's how Bass Reeves lived his life and honored his commitments, and therefore was a credible and believable witness when he was on the witness stand himself. So take that with you, and I hope it helps you to live as an upstanding citizen in your workplace, in your community, and in your life. See you next time. Hi, it's Dr. Karen here. Did you know that you can mine the lessons from your own life and work experiences to inspire your teams and your people? So in my book, Lead Yourself First, The Senior Leader's Guide to Engaging Your People for Greater Performance and Impact, I share snippets of my life experiences from childhood all the way up to adulthood. I also share what I learned from these experiences, how that learning informs how I lead today, and I share some examples of how I facilitate my client success with these same principles. So I invite you also to apply the same methodology to your life with reflection questions at the end of each chapter. So when you lead yourself first, you then have a foundation for leading others. In chapter two, which is called Run Your Own Race, I share some stories from my days as an active duty army officer. When my approach to running the two miles for the physical training test, and also my approach for the 12 mile forced road march had to be different from what other people did. So what I would say is dare to be different. Find your own success formula. Sometimes what works for you is different from what works for others. So remember to run your own race and remember to get your own copy of Lead Yourself First and you'll find resources for how to run your own race. We live in a world with so many divides between groups of people. And today, I am with Dr. Clarence Schuler, the president and CEO of Building Lasting Relationships. Dr. Schuler knows that cross-cultural friendships are part of the necessary healing journey. So Dr. Schuler, tell us more about the power of cross-cultural friendships. Well, Dr. Karen, I'd love to do that. And you know, maybe the most important relationship or one of the most important relationships we can build are cross-cultural friendships. And the reason, because we have so much racial tension and we found that if people from different cultures become friends, it actually lowers the racial tension in America. Uh, Dr. Gary Chapman, the author of the Five Love Languages, the New York Times bestselling author, and I have written this book, this resource called Life-Changing Cross-Cultural Friendships, how you can help heal racial divides one relationship at a time. And we believe 
if people would get that book and read it with a friend and talk about it or make a cross-cultural friend and read through the book together, it can change lives forever and change the racial tension in America and make it a better one. So that's really our goal with that resource. Thank you so much, Dr. Shula, for sharing that. And for those of you out there, if you would like to donate and contribute to creating cross-cultural friendships in our world, go to ClarenceShuler.com and make sure you pick up a copy of the book for yourself and start a new cross-cultural friendship today. Today, I'm here with Terrence Chapman, the president and CEO of nonprofit organization Victorious Family. They are committed to family discipleship and transformation. Thank you for being here, Terrence. Tell us about your big goal, what it is that you're going for at Victoria's Family. Well, by 2030, we see reaching 9.2 million families here in the U.S. That is wonderful. And you're reaching these families because you really want to see children grow up and truly continue their faith in Christ. So tell us about one of your resources. Do your children believe the book you've written? Well, Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers don't exasperate your children, but to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So we're just being faithful to that calling. In order to do that, we train coaches and we provide workshops and content to train parents on how to disciple their children. That is phenomenal. So how can people find out more about the ministry and the other tools and resources you have available and also how they can donate to support the ministry? Well, one of those tools is Do Your Children Believe, a book that we've published by Thomas Nelson. And you can find that at victoriousfamily.org. Fantastic. All right. So there you have it. You want your family to be victorious? Go to victoriousfamily.org. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources. Thank you.